Today we are continuing in the book of Mark. Today we finish the third chapter of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 3, starting at verse 20 through 35. So Mark 3, 20 through 35. In the 1960s, there was an Episcopal priest named Vernon Johnson. He was an alcoholic who was able to find sobriety, and he wanted to help others find a way out of the pain of addiction. His belief was that a person didn't have to hit rock bottom before they could come to a place of recovery. So he began a group in the church basement to try and figure out the best way to come alongside people earlier in their addiction before it was too late. He was the first person to introduce the concept of an intervention, where peer pressure is used by loved ones to encourage an addict to admit that they have a problem. This is usually done as a surprise to the person whom others think need to change. They meet together and confront their loved one about how their substance abuse is harming their lives and plead with them to seek treatment. Over the years, countless interventions have been used by families. I know in some of ours as well, because addiction is a major, major problem in our country and around the world. Reverend Johnson, of course, did not invent the idea of concerned relatives and co-workers coming together to save someone that they believed was on a path that was risky and maybe even dangerous. This has happened throughout history. Wherever there are people, there is brokenness. And where there is brokenness, there are those who want to help find solutions. The problem comes when the person being helped doesn't want to change, or when those staging an intervention have mixed motivations or have no idea what's really going on with the person. In the passage with Jesus today, we see that what is happening is basically an intervention. Those who know him well are coming at the same time using various tactics so that they might save him. Now, we know that he's fine, but that's not how it looked to those who were around him. There was something happening, and they were frightened either for him or for themselves, and it drove them to come together at quite a distance to possibly see if they could change his mind about his lifestyle choices. So we're going to see that although key people attempted to silence him, Jesus was not moved by their actions. So let's look at the story now, Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here we see those who are closest to Jesus wanting to silence him. We expect opposition from those around us who have different views and values outside of our faith. We're used to that, even if we aren't always ready for it. But when pushback occurs from people who are closest to us, relationally, and maybe even in the faith, we don't know always how to respond. What Jesus experienced here is an attack. Again, in some ways it makes sense. He represents them, family and associates and a faith community. Somehow they're threatened or afraid for how his behavior is going to reflect on them. Or the changes he's bringing are going to cause his downfall. They're correct about all of those things. How he deals with them, though, teaches us a lesson for what we can do when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. So let's look at that for a few minutes. The first lesson we see is to ignore those who want to remove us from a place that we feel convinced God has told us to be. His family come to forcibly take him away, and Jesus does not leave. They come because they say that he is out of his mind, literally in the Greek, beside himself. They've traveled 30 miles to get him, presumably to take him back home. We haven't read yet about Jesus' family in Mark, so this is our first glimpse. When we think about the culture that Jesus was born into, we understand he's going rogue. He's not taking over the family business. He's not staying close to home. He's not married. He doesn't seem to be concerned about security. He's not necessarily helping them out. They might not really understand him very much. It seems highly plausible that the religious leaders and the family have colluded together. So who knows what the religious leaders have told the family before they got there. Maybe they're bothered because so much opposition has been building against him. It makes sense to us that they're frightened. We don't know if Jesus explained anything when he left home. Sometimes God doesn't give us much advance notice of what he's doing. However it works, the gospel writers don't give us much of a clue into Jesus' family dynamic. It's enough for us to know that they felt convinced that they could come 
and force him to abandon his ministry. But reading this also made me think about how often we say in our common vernacular how someone is crazy. We might be talking about a former spouse or a former friend, a parent or a teacher or a bad boss or someone that we interacted with in public. Perhaps we talk that way about someone who's having a lot of chaos in their lives But for those of us who have loved ones or who struggle with mental illness, this is a difficult phrase to hear. Just because we've had a painful relationship with someone or we don't understand their choices doesn't make them crazy. When we label someone as mental or certifiable, I heard that yesterday, we take away their dignity and their value as a person whose identity goes beyond their struggle whose value goes beyond your bad relationship with them. Honestly, our label on someone who is struggling to cope says more about our lack of empathy and how condemning we can be. I understand wanting to distance ourselves from someone who's toxic, from someone who's abusive, but let's be careful not to do it in a way that we present that they are less than we are. It might seem funny at the time, but it's at the expense of someone who truly may not be well, and they deserve more than our flippant jokes or cutting explanations for their behavior. Here, Jesus is branded as crazy so that they can remove him from being in the position of influencing others. He is out of his mind, might be code for how he's not living the family values he was taught. Or he's not staying within a certain construct that people expect him to. It's hard to know what the tipping point for them is here. All of a sudden they say he's out of his mind. Well, what what makes them think that? Because the crowd was so big? Because he didn't get lunch with his disciples? How do we respond when people who know us well, with whom we have a, a type of bond, How do we respond when they try to take us out? What do we do? Jesus shows us here, we stay the course. We continue in those contexts or those behaviors where God has placed us, where we are doing good work for him. The place is crowded because people are hungry to hear the word of God. We, too, should not be dissuaded by those who are worried that we have lost our way, that we have become some kind of fanatic. We continue on the path that he has shown us. We answer to him first. The second lesson we learn here from Jesus is to help people who are opposing us to think through their position by using reason. When the teachers of the law, who came all the way from Jerusalem way up high down to where Jesus was, below sea level, to discredit him, they say that he is doing the devil's work. And Jesus neatly uses logic to show them their fallacy. By doing it publicly, he is teaching those present and us today a way to respond to accusations like this. The idea being put on the table is that Jesus' authority is coming from an evil source, and he himself is evil. What is scary? Someone who's possessed. The teachers here are trying to convince the crowd. They're trying to whip up the crowd that they should be terrified 
of Jesus. But the teacher should have thought through their logic a little bit more. It's one thing to say he's possessed. It's another to say that by the power of evil, he's driving through evil. When I was studying for this, I kept thinking about Beauty and the Beast. Couldn't get it out of my head, so I think I have to talk about it for a second. In the story, of course, the prince, because he's selfish and unwise, gets cursed as being a beast. And he is, of course, the villain in the story when he captures Belle, the young woman who comes to his castle. However, over time as she lives there, he learns kindness and self-control and eventually love. But the movie has a third main actor, an arrogant hunter named Gaston, who wants to marry Belle because he deserves the best. And isn't she the best? He's the most handsome, so he must have the prettiest girl in the village. At the climax of the movie, when he realizes that Belle is falling in love with the beast over him, he gathers the townspeople together. And telling them stories and lies, he organizes a mob to storm the castle, all so that they can go and kill the beast. Fear is a powerful motivator. Whenever someone is trying to convince you to do something and using fear to do it, I exhort you to stop and think about what's happening I exhort you to stop and use the reason that God has given you and think about whether or not what this person is saying is really more about themselves or their fear than you. God is never afraid, ever, and he never uses fear against us. One way we know that Jesus is not evil is how he responds to them. He talks to them face to face. He's not threatening. He doesn't call them rude names back in an attempt to discredit them. He knows they're frightened. What he's doing is new. It needs some interpretation. It's okay to be afraid. What's not okay is inciting the crowds to believe that someone who is trying to accomplish good in the name of God is an evil person who has come from Satan. Beelzebub was the Canaanite name for Baal, the chief pagan god who became identified as the chief among demons. You see, the leaders can't deny that Jesus was healing people who were possessed. But since they think that they're from God and Jesus is not, then he must be from the only other source of power they know, the devil. Now, in some ways, this is correct thinking. The power has to come from some place. It is disheartening, though, when we read the Gospels, for those who are supposed to be from God, that there are very few who really even wonder, Jesus, are you really from God? It means we ourselves have to be careful that we don't throw something out that actually comes from the Lord. We both need to guard orthodoxy, right thinking, and also be open to the new things that the Lord is doing. Jesus makes a few points well. How can I be Satan if I'm actually driving out Satan? This does not make sense. 
Also, he tells them he's come to bind up the strong man who is Satan, so the world might not be under that power anymore. This is the purpose Jesus is trying to tell them. This is why I'm delivering people from the oppression of demons. And, he says, those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven when their heart is unrepentant. Jesus is giving them some good counsel here. In calling him evil, they're in a serious place, even if they don't realize it. You may recognize Abraham Lincoln's words from this passage. In 1858, Lincoln was engaged in a series of famous debates with an Illinois senator named Stephen Douglas. Douglas was the incumbent senator from Illinois, and Lincoln was running against him for that seat. Lincoln was responding in his speech about having a house be divided to Douglas's belief that each state or territory could decide for itself whether it was going to be a, a slave or a free state without any federal intervention. G- and Lincoln said, it's not possible. We're going to have to come to the point as a nation where we're going to have to decide with that we're either going to be all slave or all free. And Lincoln used these words of Jesus to prophetically show that it was impossible for a country to move forward on an issue that was so divisive. Lincoln lost that election, but the words ring through through the generations because he made great use of the Lord's teaching in a powerful way. Many believe that speech helped get him elected to the presidency a few years later as the truth he spoke made people wake up to the issue of slavery, to the issue that was surrounding our country and the choice before them. In verse 28, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. This is what's needed for us as Christians when we live under the threat of attack in various places. We have to be ready to use reason and discuss the faith with those who call us names, with those who oppose us. We have to embrace what Jesus teaches here and help other people think through what they're really saying. Martin Luther King said, good cannot be accomplished with evil. That's what Jesus is saying here. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can. We can't rid ourselves of cruelty by acting cruel. Truth is not found in lies. Liberty cannot be expressed where there is repression. The leaders interpreted Jesus' love, him trying to come and do good, as evil. But the truth is, it was evil that was binding them, blinding them from seeing what was true. They themselves were divided in their hearts about God, and they couldn't see it. And Jesus is trying to break through that. What a good lesson for all of us. Let's listen to what's being presented. Let's listen for what's happening underneath, and then calmly have a conversation with a person about it. God will bring what is necessary to help us. He is stronger than evil every time. The last lesson we see here is how Jesus responds to family expectations with a redefinition in kingdom language. His mother and brother and sister stand outside and send somebody in for him. 
it's implied from before that they are coming to remove him. Again, Jesus does not go out to speak to them. He will not be called out as if he is in the place of being misguided or wrong. This verse should not be interpreted as church work coming before family. That is not what this is saying. It's about the family wanting to take control of Jesus in a different way, the less direct way. It's almost as if they think, well, we can't really get in there, so we're going to send somebody else in, and they won't, he won't be able to say no to them. Surprise. <laughs> Jesus, who is emotionally healthy, absolutely says, yeah, no way. I was thinking how this might empower us in the moments we feel trapped by familial bonds, which threaten to take the place of the Lord's work in our lives. See, many people left their families to follow Jesus. Not only can following Jesus separate us physically, but it can also sever relational ties because not everyone believes, of course, that he's the Messiah Jesus said in other places that the gospel is going to drive a wedge between us and our family sometimes. We've seen this play out in every culture, in every country on the planet. We've seen it maybe even play out in our families. But think about how these words of Jesus provide a comfort for those whose family have estranged them. Because sometimes when we say we believe in Jesus, our family's like, nope, we're done. We don't want you to talk about that. We don't want to have relationship with you anymore. That's so painful. And Jesus is saying, it's okay because you have a home with people who love you. That the bonds of the spirit are strong and family is important and good. But when your family says We reject you if you're going to follow Jesus. Then Jesus says, you have a family who will never reject you and who will always, always welcome you. What does this truth mean for you in your life? There are people who might be in your life for whom this is true right now. And you can say to them, you know, we have a great family and you'd always be welcome. You can always come and be with us. Interventions have literally saved lives. Lives that were in tatters from no longer functioning in a healthy way. But do you see the irony here? Jesus came to save people, to offer his life so that they might live. And in this passage, in this surprise intervention, it was meant to stop him from doing that, from offering that life. But his grace made it possible for those who were challenging him and brought them saving grace, the saving grace that they needed. All of us are going to be challenged at some point by those who are close to us for that which God is empowering us to do, for that which God is asking us to be in him. And in those moments, which might feel like a surprise attack, remember to whom you truly answer. Who is your authority? Who is fueling your life? We are accountable to many, but we are answerable to one. 
So let us take time with the Lord to talk over what he is teaching us through these words in Mark. Mark.